Since the election, I've been thinking a lot about how we can do a better job of pushing policy back into our politics. I have a new appreciation for the galvanizing power of big, simple ideas. I still think my health care and college plans were more achievable than Bernie's and that his were fraught with problems. But they were easier to explain and understand, and that counts for a lot. It's easy to ridicule ideas that, quote, fit on a bumper sticker, unquote. But there's a reason campaigns use bumper stickers. They work. Bernie proved again that it's important to set lofty goals that people can organize around and dream about, even if it takes generations to achieve them. That's what happened with universal health care. For a hundred years, Democrats campaigned on giving all Americans access to affordable, quality care. Bill and I tried to get it done in the 1990s, and we succeeded in creating CHIP, which provides coverage to millions of kids. It wasn't until Obama was swept into office with a supermajority in the Senate that we could finally pass the Affordable Care Act. Even then, the ACA was a hodgepodge of imperfect compromises. But that historic achievement was possible only because Democrats had kept universal health care as our North Star for decades. There's a historical irony here. Bill's presidency is often associated with small-bore initiatives such as midnight basketball and school uniforms, the opposite of those big, transformative ideas that liberals dream about. But that view misses so much. I believe Bill's impact on our party and our country was profound and transformative. He reinvented a moribund party that had lost five of the previous six presidential elections, infusing it with new energy and ideas, and proving that Democrats could be pro-growth and pro-environment, pro-business and pro-labor, pro-public safety and pro-civil rights. He reversed trickle-down economics, balanced the federal budget, challenged Americans to embrace a new ethic of national service with AmeriCorps, and presided over two terms of peace and broadly shared prosperity. The new Democratic Party he built went on to win the popular vote in six of the next seven elections between 1992 and 2016. He also inspired a generation of modernizing progressives in other Western democracies, especially Tony Blair's new Labor Party in the United Kingdom. In short, there was nothing small bore about the Clinton presidency. I believe my presidency also would have been transformative because of the big ideas I proposed to build an economy that works for everyone, not just those at the top. Here are a few of them. First, we need the biggest investment in good jobs since World War II. This should include a massive infrastructure program that repairs and modernizes America's roads, bridges, tunnels, ports, airports, and broadband networks. New incentives to attract and support manufacturing jobs in hard-hit communities, from coal country to Indian country. Debt-free college and improved training and apprenticeship programs to help people without college degrees get higher-paying jobs. Support for small business by expanding access to capital and new markets and cutting taxes and red tape. A big push to expand clean energy production, including deploying half a billion solar panels in four years and major investments in scientific research to create the jobs and industries of tomorrow. Second, to make the economy fairer, we need new rules and incentives to make it easier for companies to raise wages and share profits with employees, 
harder for them to ship jobs overseas and bust unions. We have to make sure Wall Street can't wreck Main Street again and get smarter and tougher on trade so American workers aren't caught in an unwinnable race against subsidized or state-owned industries, substandard labor conditions, or currency manipulation. Third, we have to modernize workforce protections with a higher minimum wage, equal pay for women, paid family and medical leave, and affordable child care. We should defend and improve the Affordable Care Act to reduce prices and expand coverage, including with a public option. Fourth, we can pay for all of this with higher taxes on the top 1% of Americans who have reaped the lion's share of income and wealth gain since 2000. This would also help reduce inequality. I could go on, but that gives you a flavor of some of the things I would have tried to get done as president. Unfortunately, despite the fact that I talked about these ideas endlessly, they never got much media attention and most people never heard about any of them. I failed to convince the press that economics was more important than emails, but it was. Just as frustrating is the fact that I never managed to convince some skeptics that I really was in it to help working families. I thought that based on my years fighting for health care reform, my record in helping create jobs as a senator, my efforts to raise the alarm before the financial crisis, and my early commitment to address the opioid epidemic, people would see me as a proven change maker and a fighter for children and families. Instead, I never quite shook the false perception that I was a defender of the status quo. In my more introspective moments, I do recognize that my campaign in 2016 lacked the sense of urgency and passion that I remember from 1992. Back then, we were on a mission to revitalize the Democratic Party and bring our country back from 12 years of trickle-down economics that had exploded the deficit, hurt the middle class, and increased poverty. In 2016, we were seeking to build on eight years of progress. For a change-hungry electorate, it was a harder sell. More hopeful voters bought it. More pessimistic voters didn't. Another lesson from this election, and from the Trump phenomenon in particular, is that traditional Republican ideology is bankrupt. For decades, the big debates in American politics were about the size and role of government. Democrats argued for a more active federal government and a stronger social safety net, while Republicans argued for a smaller government, lower taxes, and fewer regulations. The country seemed fairly evenly divided, or perhaps tilted slightly to the center-right. Then Trump came along and pulled back the curtain on what was really going on. We learned that many Republican voters didn't have any problem with big government, so long as it was big government for them. Perhaps this has always been true. You may recall the infamous signs at Tea Party rallies that read, with no hint of irony, keep your government hands off my Medicare. But Trump brought it out into the open. He promised to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, while abandoning free trade and getting tough on bankers, in direct contradiction of Republican orthodoxy. Instead of paying a price for it, he swept away all his more traditional GOP rivals. Once in office, Trump abandoned most of his populist promises and largely hewed to the party line. 
But that shouldn't obscure the fact that many of his voters wanted to chuck the orthodoxy and preserve entitlements. The reality is that doctrinaire trickle-downers who control Congress wield enormous power without having any real constituency for their policies outside the Republican donor class. When Republicans were opposing Obama or attacking me, they could unite against a common enemy. But now that they're in power and people actually expect them to deliver results, we're seeing that there's little holding the Republican Party together. The implications of all this are potentially profound. If Trump can't deliver for working families, Democrats have to and be able to explain. It may be hard for us to match his grandiose promises because we still believe in arithmetic, but we can offer real results. We still believe in trade, but we've got to be clearer about how we'd be tougher on countries trying to take advantage of American workers and how we'd provide more funding up front for people hurt by foreign competition. We still believe in immigration, but we have to make a better case that if done right, it will help all working people. Democrats should reevaluate a lot of our assumptions about which policies are politically viable. These trends make universal programs even more appealing than we previously thought. I mean programs like Social Security and Medicare, which benefit every American, as opposed to Medicaid, food stamps, and other initiatives targeted to the poor. Targeted programs may be more efficient and progressive, and that's why during the primaries I criticized Bernie's Free College for All plan as providing wasteful, taxpayer-funded giveaways to rich kids. But it's precisely because they don't benefit everyone that targeted programs are so easily stigmatized and demagogued. We've seen this with the Affordable Care Act. For years, it was attacked as a new subsidy for poor people of color. A lot of working-class whites didn't think it benefited them at all, especially if they lived in states where Republican leaders refused to expand Medicaid. In white-majority states where Medicaid was expanded, such as Arkansas and Kentucky, the beneficiaries were overwhelmingly white working families. But many voted for Trump anyway, betting he would take health care away from others and let them keep theirs. It was only when many Americans realized that repealing the ACA would take away universal protections they had come to enjoy, especially regarding pre-existing conditions, that the law became popular. Medicaid's expansion has made it more popular, too. The conclusion I reach from this is that Democrats should redouble our efforts to develop bold, creative ideas that offer broad-based benefits for the whole country. Before I ran for president, I read a book called With Liberty and Dividends for All, How to Save Our Middle Class When Jobs Don't Pay Enough by Peter Barnes, which explored the idea of creating a new fund that would use revenue from shared national resources to pay a dividend to every citizen, much like how the Alaska Permanent Fund distributes the state's oil royalties every year. Shared national resources include oil and gas extracted from public lands and the public airwaves used by broadcasters and mobile phone companies. But that gets you only so far. If you view the nation's financial system as a shared resource, then you can start raising real money from things like a financial transactions tax. Same with the air we breathe and carbon pricing. Once you capitalize the fund, 
you can provide every American with a modest, basic income every year. Besides cash in people's pockets, it would also be a way of making every American feel more connected to our country and to one another, part of something bigger than ourselves. I was fascinated by this idea, as was my husband and we spent weeks working with our policy team to see if it could be viable enough to include in my campaign. We would call it Alaska for America. Unfortunately, we couldn't make the numbers work. To provide a meaningful dividend each year to every citizen, you'd have to raise enormous sums of money, and that would either mean a lot of new taxes or cannibalizing other important programs. We decided it was exciting but not realistic and left it on the shelf. That was the responsible decision. I wonder now whether we should have thrown caution to the wind and embraced Alaska for America as a long-term goal and figured out the details later. Interestingly, some Republican elder statesmen, such as former U.S. Treasury Secretaries James Baker and Hank Paulson, recently proposed a nationwide carbon dividend program that would tax fossil fuel use and refund all the money directly to every American. They think it's a reasonable, conservative response to the problems of climate change and income inequality and a good alternative to government regulation. Under such a plan, working families with small carbon footprints could end up with a big boost in their incomes. We looked at this for the campaign as well, but couldn't make the math work without imposing new costs on upper-middle-class families, which I had pledged not to do. Still, it's tantalizing. A conservative government in Sweden created a similar program in 1991, and within a decade, it had reduced greenhouse gas emissions and expanded the economy by 50% because so many Swedes used their tax rebates to increase energy efficiency, thus creating new jobs, increasing productivity, and lowering their electric bills. We need to be thinking outside the box because the challenges we face are only getting bigger and more complex. Climate change is one example. Another is the long-term effects of automation and artificial intelligence, both on employment and national security. Bear with me here because I have a lot to say about this. Over the past few years, I've had a series of alarming conversations with leading technologists in Silicon Valley who warned that this could be the first great technological revolution that ends up displacing more jobs than it creates. The impact of trade on our manufacturing industry received a lot more attention during the campaign, but many economists say that advances in technology actually have displaced far more jobs than trade in recent decades. For instance, between 1962 and 2005, about 400,000 steelworker jobs disappeared. Competition from steel made in China and other countries was part of the problem. But technological innovation and automation were the bigger culprits. They allowed manufacturers to produce the same amount of steel with fewer and fewer workers at lower costs. The same story has been replicated across many industries, and it isn't slowing down anytime soon. The arrival of self-driving cars could displace millions of truckers and taxi drivers. 
Some economists estimate that automation could put a third of all American men aged 25 to 54 out of work by 2050. Even if we manage to create new industries and new categories of jobs to replace those we've lost, the speed and breadth of the changes we're facing will be destabilizing for millions of people. I'm not suggesting that we should try to stop the march of technology. That would cause more problems than it solves. But we do need to make sure it's working more for us than against us. If we can figure that out, including how to talk about it in a way that Americans will understand and support, that will be both good policy and good politics. There's another angle to consider as well. Technologists like Elon Musk, Sam Altman, and Bill Gates, and physicists like Stephen Hawking, have warned that artificial intelligence could one day pose an existential security threat. Musk has called it the greatest risk we face as a civilization. Think about it. Have you ever seen a movie where the machines start thinking for themselves that ends well? Every time I went out to Silicon Valley during the campaign, I came home more alarmed about this. My staff lived in fear that I'd start talking about the rise of the robots in some Iowa town hall. Maybe I should have. In any case, policymakers need to keep up with technology as it races ahead, instead of always playing catch-up. Across the board, we should be unafraid to kick the tires on transformative ideas, like taxing net worth instead of annual income, which would make our system fairer, reduce inequality, and provide the resources to make the major investments our country needs. Or a national service initiative much broader than anything we have now, perhaps even universal. We should totally reimagine our training and workforce development system so that employers and unions are true partners and people who don't go to college can find a good job and enjoy a middle-class life. We need to completely rethink how Americans receive benefits such as retirement and health care, so that they're universal, automatic, and portable. As you probably can tell by now, I love talking about this stuff. The point is, we have to think big and think different. No matter what I do in the years ahead, I'll be chasing down new policy ideas that I think could make a difference. Not every election will be so filled with venom, misinformation, resentments, and outside interference as this one was. Solutions are going to matter again in politics. Democrats must be ready when that day comes.